What's up, everyone? This is Trey Van Camp, and you are listening to the Ministrade Podcast. But now let's define what is the gospel. I want you to listen intently. I don't have it in your journals. I actually have a shortened version, which I think uh, my dad likes a whole lot more because it's actually, a, I think it's better. But let me, li- let me read this long version to you, and then we'll read this short version. Mark Dever, he put it this way. This is all, no, okay, I was going to say, I think it's two sentences, but it sounds like 18. Okay, the good news is that the one and only God, who is holy, made us in his image to know him. But we sinned and cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. Now that is the good news. There's a lot there. But I hope we're going to give you some handlebars here tonight with God, man, Jesus' response. And you'll be able to explain it to your neighbor. Explain it to yourself. By the way, this is not just for them. It's for us every day. Amen. The gospel is not for the first day of salvation. Now we're good. It's for every single day. And we're talking about it a little bit more next week. Jared Wilson, he put it this way. He says, what is the gospel? It's that the greatest good, being God, offers the greatest action, being love, to the greatest need, uh, us, our wrath-owed sinners. By sending great treasure, that being Jesus, and the greatest invitation to everyone into the greatest life everlasting. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's news that we uh, have many reasons to worship God for. Now, okay, so what we'll see here next on your, on your, uh, your paper here, we've divided it up into four categories. It's God, man, Jesus' response. You'll also see it's defined as creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I hope to make sense of this tonight. Now, we actually have it in the Welcome Center, but we are selling this for $5 just at cost. I think we're even eating some of the money. But here, what is the gospel? This lays out, it's here, they, it's, it's God, man, Christ response. Um, but this lays it out. So I strongly urge you, I am going to do a cliff note version of what this is saying, okay? But order this and get this book. We only have 20, so if, if it runs out, then... Uh, Make sure you order online. It is worth every single penny, and I love handing this to people. But here, that's kind of what we're looking at. So let's first look at God. So again, God, man, Jesus' response. All throughout the Bible, you'll see these four themes, and this is how you can define the gospel. So the first topic we must look at is that God is holy. That is so foundational. By the way, notice how we start with God and not with man. It's so easy for us. We want to talk about us first, but we must first have the posture of, wait, God, this whole story is actually about you. You're the main character in this story. So we have God, uh, and he is holy. Anybody know what holy, how you define holy? Set apart. Somebody said it. Good job, Lori. Set apart, meaning, literally, no one is like God, okay? He is holy. He is set apart in every single way. Right? He is the only one who is eternal. He is set apart. He cannot sin. We sin. Completely set apart. He's also set apart from the angels. He's set apart from Satan, obviously. And demons, he is completely set apart from everybody else. You'll see, I'd love for you to read the scriptures. Mainly, I would love for this class not to be okay just listening. Now I'm not going to think about it the rest of the week. I would love for you to take these few scriptures I provided and for you to walk through this with your family or just yourself as, as quiet time and look at, okay, I'm going to read Exodus 3. How is God seen as holy in this passage? One I'm going to highlight, well, I love Revelation 4 and 5. It's all the creature. It's everybody worshiping God and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The one thing they're praising God about is his holiness. So we must know God is holy. Now, Isaiah 6, you guys know that story. Isaiah is before the throne, and, and he recognizes, wow, you are holy and I am not. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. So it's this picture. For us to understand the gospel, we must first get a clear picture of who God is. And the most important, essential part is to see that he's holy. Okay? We good on that one? All right. By the way, the opposite of holiness, another way to look at it, is common. 
or unclean. He is not common. He is clean. Okay? Now, another thing, by the way, one more thing. He does what he says, and he keeps his promises. No one else can do that. He's set apart. He keeps the promises he makes to all of his children. All right, the next part is he's righteous. A lot of people would say, isn't that the same as holiness? Well, one can argue. But righteousness is really emphasizing his otherness, his rightness, and his goodness. He does people right. Okay? He is right in all of his acts. God acts in accordance to his law and requires the same from us. He's completely righteous. Psalm eleven seven talks, it praises him. Oh God, you are the only one who is righteous. See, God rewards righteousness, punishes wickedness, and offers mercy to the hurting. And it's kind of funny. We love God being righteous as long as it's not being directed towards us. Right? Because what would a righteous judge do? He would cause whatever that person did, you have to pay the penalty. And God, being righteous, he has to punish sin because he is right. I'm going to talk about that in just a few minutes. So righteous. The next thing is God is creator. Think about it. Why is it so important? The three essential, by the way, there's so many things you can learn about God. I mean, there, I mean, just, I, I strongly suggest systematic theology either by uh, Erickson or uh, Wayne Grudem. I personally like the Erickson one a little bit better, uh, but, but any of those are fine. But you can totally, you can just study the attributes of God on end. But why is it important to know that he's holy, he's righteous, but he's also our creator? What's so important about knowing him as our creator is it puts us in the proper posture of recognize that we are his creation. So in other words, he's the one who created the way the world works, not us. He's the one that's established how the law is supposed to operate, not us. So we have no right to declare this is what's right and this is what's wrong because we aren't the creators of this thing. God is the creator. He's the one establishing things in place, and we just follow what he has done. I can't stand your mic, Dad. I'm dying here. You have a huge ear. Okay. Genesis 1-1, for God created. That's, notice how important God said, the very first thing I'm going to tell you in all the Bible is that I created. God is creator. I'm, I wonder how many of us, when we talk to God, we say, hey, God, creator. I wonder if we think about him that way. Do you think about God as your creator? It changes the way you view him, and for the better. Now, before we move on, it's so important for us um, uh, to, to not overemphasize different parts. In other words, a lot of people in our culture today, when we talk about God, we only want to talk about God's love, and we want to avoid God's wrath. There's a problem with that. Because by avoiding God's wrath, you're actually not getting a clear picture of God's love. Think about it. If someone hurt my daughter, it is very right for me to have wrath towards that person and make sure that person gets punished and that it won't happen anymore, right? Wouldn't that be rightful? It is not loving of me to allow this to continue to happen to my daughter. I would not be a loving father. God hates because he loves. He has to hate. Now, uh, a lot of a theologian put it, inherently within him, God is love. But because of our actions, now God hates. But that's because of what we've done. But it, does that make sense? What's foundational is his love. Because he loves, he hates. What happens, though, is we live in cultures where some people, there actually is places in this world, in America, we overemphasize God's wrath. No, God hates everybody. He hates these people. He hates that people. When you only talk about that, you're missing out on this beautiful thing called God's love. But when you only talk about God's love, you're actually not actually telling people what God's love is really about because God is righteous and he is holy and he takes care of his people and he punishes sin. Don't all of us love that there is a jail system, right? We love that people are put away. God is the same. God, that does, that is, does not mean purgatory. Don't take that theology. Okay, God puts people in jail and then they're free. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying justice. I know, I know how people think. All right. Make sense? So let's go on to man. Now, I'm going to use this as an opportunity. I'm just going to speak to this. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, okay? I'm really going to be talking about God, man, Jesus' response more, but I want us to see, okay, God, we first see creation. So when you read the Bible, the first thing that happens is creation. What happens after that, we see in Genesis 3, what does man do? We fall, okay? We, we, we've turned away from God. So now, Throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament, you have the fall. You have the effects of what happens when the people turn away from God. In the New Testament, you have 
now you have what? Redemption, because Jesus comes. So now you see throughout the New Testament, you see, and by the way, you see, you see the Old Testament pointing towards it, but now you see it actually being offered. In the New Testament, we have redemption. We are redeemed. And then, you especially at the end, what do we have? A new heaven, a new earth. We see it all being restored. This is the trajectory of the Bible. It's creation, fall. We are in redemption, and we are calling. The reason why we serve our community is we want to restore the world the way God had originally intended. That means we love those people even if they never come to Christ because God's original intent was that we love everybody. You guys see that? It's just so important to understand that whole overview, 30,000 feet, the whole Bible is about the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we're going to look at that the third week. We're going to talk about the kingdom of God, and that's really our responsibility as believers is not just to bring people and redeem them, but to restore our entire community back to how it was originally intended. But that's a side note. That was for free. All right, now let's look at man. Man, man, this is really good. Man, man, this is good. Okay. Too early? All right. The first thing we see here, by the way, we call it fall because we fell from the presence of God. The first thing that's so important to know about man is that we are made. Oh, am I keeping up? I was not keeping up. I am so sorry. It was righteous and then creator. Man, image of God. Most people are confused. Do you know what image of God means? See, I, I hate that. This is our first class, so we have like a ton of people. Eventually, we'll just have like a classroom setting so you guys can talk back a little bit more. But when you think image of God, what do you think? Hmm? Carbon copy? Right on. Is that what people do with paper or something? I don't. Just kidding. That's old stuff. Is that like fax machines? And I read in a history book. Uh, what else? Image of God. What? Mirror. That's, I love, I love using the mirror illustration. So, so here, I, growing up, I always thought image of God means he has a nose, right? So I have a nose. He has biceps. So I, no, you know what I'm saying? Like I thought, I look like him. But the reality is, I mean, we look like Jesus, right? Because he came down in the flesh. But what's more important is that said, look, he says uh, in Genesis 1.26, he says, let us, by the way, notice us and not me because of the Trinity there, let us make man in our image. What he did was he established people above animals, above everything else, and he gave us his attribute of love. He gave us his attribute of community. Did you know God lives in community? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're, they are so, uh, they are in such community together that you can't even tell the difference between them, which is, by the way, that's what we're called to do here. We're called to love each other so much that, wow, they're family. They're in community. So God created us to, be, to reflect the image of God like a mirror. God looks down, and when he looks down at his creation, he overflows with joy because he sees himself in us. Which, by the way, only God can be thankful to see themselves in someone else, right? Because he's perfect. He can rejoice in that, okay? But I love that faith looks like me. But anyways, okay, so I just rejoice over that. So in other words, this is also, in the image of God, there's three things, uh, uh, three relationships we have. Uh, upward, outward, and inward. In the image of God, we were created in the image of God, meaning upward, we have a perfect relationship with him. Outward, we are in complete relationship with others, perfect. And inward, we are at peace with ourselves. That is how God created us, because we are in his image. Um, yeah, and this is the last point for that. This is exactly why we love everyone. This is why we don't pick who we like and who we don't. Because every single person on this planet was made in the image of God. And because they're made in the image of God, we love them. Because they have God in them. You know, they, they, they were born to reflect God. That's what worries me. If you look at society, you look at civilization, you look at history, every civilization that begins to ignore the doctrine of the image of God begins to eventually hate a certain people group and eventually fall as a civilization altogether because they didn't care for everybody. And it starts with the theology of understanding, I love everybody because God loves them, because God made that person, not only just made them, but made them in the image of him. But we have a problem. Here's the point number two. We, have, we are sinners. We have sinned against God. So it's so crucial for us to know that man was originally intended to just be exactly in the image of God, just to rejoice in him and use all of our gifts, talents, and treasures to make much of him. And it's supposed to be this beautiful relationship, but then Adam and Eve, stinking Eve, fell. 
sinned. I blame the woman. Just kidding. It said, Paul says not to do that, but I still do. Uh, Romans 3.23. Does anybody know what Romans 3.23 says? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. Genesis 3. Read that narrative. It's the first. It's when Adam and Eve, they sinned. And, and uh, Satan tempts Eve. Eve, uh, we love to blame him, but did you know Adam's sin? So, side note. Here's how we're sinners. This is good. Omission and commission. So omission is, is not doing what you're supposed to do. Commission is doing what you're not supposed to do. Does that make sense? So, so Eve had the sin of commission because she actively took from the fruit. She was sinning by doing something wrong. But Adam had the sin of omission because he wasn't leading his wife. He wasn't saying, hey, Satan, get flee from me. Right? Get behind me, Satan. I'm the man of this household. Get away from my wife. All right? You see that? Omission and commission. So many times when we think about sinning, we only repent of the things that we did wrong. How often do we repent of the things we didn't do? That is why we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're constantly sinning. But here's the problem. Too often, as people, if we don't study theology, we start to minimalize and marginalize sin. Because it's all we're used to. Everybody's a sinner, so it's not that big of a deal. I wish people had so much hate for their sin as much as they have hate for other people's sin that they don't struggle with. Because sin is nasty. And it breaks up relationships, most importantly with God and others. And it destroys people. But we minimize, minimize it and think it's not that big of a deal. So what we have here in Genesis 3, it's a picture of pride and self-centeredness. Adam blames God and Eve, even Eve blames the snake. They're no longer at peace with God. And here we have the initial, now there will be death. And now there is banishment from Eden, meaning banished from the presence of God. So guys, we're in big, big trouble. Genesis 3 should be read with tears. But here's the next part. We're dead spiritually. We're spiritually dead. I know sometimes I didn't provide enough room. If you want to just put dead, that's cool. Sorry for all those OCD people like, this isn't working. Sorry, okay, I'll make them bigger next time. I'll make them taller, whatever. All right, just show me yours after, and I'll change the design. Okay, Romans 6.23, does anybody have that memorized? Laura, you're killing it tonight. For the wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We are spiritually dead. My favorite is Ephesians 2.1. Do you know that one? For we were dead in our trespasses and sins against us. Ephesians 2.1 through uh, 10 is one of the beautiful pictures of the gospel, but here's what that essentially means. It means, did, have you ever seen a dead man? Have you ever seen a dead person do anything? If you did, weird, <laughs> right? You know, like, I would run the other way, right? Um, actually, my uncle, did, did Uncle Andy show up? Is he here? He's from Virginia, but he said he drove a hearse once, and uh, there's a huge flatulation in, in the uh, the casket and it freaked them out because they that's the only thing they do when you're a dead body you still have some air to get rid of he's like oh my gosh he's alive you know i just can't imagine that that'd be terrifying oh and it's man somebody smells like death right like a <laughs> who died you know oh yeah it's that guy okay all right that was bad oh lord forgive me this is why it's so important to know that we're spiritually dead, because guess what? You can't do anything to get back to God. As a sinner spiritually, there's nothing you can do to earn yourself back into the kingdom of heaven. Nothing. You can't earn your way to heaven because you're dead. And guess what? The last time I checked, besides Jesus, a dead person can't do a thing. And that's why it's so important for us to know that. Isn't that weird? I love, I love theology because we rejoice in things that sound horrible. Because I love the fact that I don't have this pressure because it's not up to me. Praise God I'm dead spiritually because I don't know if I'd be able to pull it off. Here's the next thing. We have Jesus. I'm a fan. I like him. We have redemption. We're redeemed. So using the mirror, what would happen is we, are, we were a perfect mirror reflecting the image of God, perfectly reflecting his attributes, and then when we sinned, we smashed the mirror in pieces. And so that's why for us, there's moments, non-believers and believers alike, we, well, especially, like, you know, non-believers can show moments of kindness. We can have these opportunities where we actually have community. 
where we actually properly love each other because we still have the image of God within us. It's just shattered, and it's not a perfect picture anymore. That's why Jesus came onto the scene. That's why Jesus came and completely changed the game. Here's the, here's the uh, it's so important to know this. One of the most important things to know about Jesus is he was fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. Do you know why that's so important? Have you guys ever read the book of Esther before? It's in the Bible, so anybody? What I love about Esther, it's a beautiful picture of fully God, fully man. Here's what I mean by that. Esther, she, was, uh, she entered into the very first ever bachelor. And so, you guys tracking with me? You ever seen that show? Is it, okay, when it's, the, yeah, it's bachelor. No, is it bachelorette? When it's a bunch of girls and one guy, what is it? Bachelor. Okay, first ever bachelor show. They think they're so creative. This happened thousands of years ago. And so Esther, she didn't let anybody know, but she was of Jewish heritage. Inherited. She was a Jew, but she entered into this, and she won, and she became the queen, okay? The queen of Persia. So now she's in the royal, royal throne with the king, and she has all of that, but all, all the while she has the Jewish culture because she knows she is a Jew. And you have this beautiful opportunity where the king, King Xerxes, says, I'm going to kill every single Jew on the planet, Hitler 1.0. But what does Esther do? She saves the entire people because she says, look, I know I'm a queen. I have a relationship with you, but I'm also a Jew. And so she was the perfect ambassador. She represented both parties perfectly. Jesus, God, is in the throne, totally righteous, with him, holy. But at the same time, he became man. He was tempted as every way we were, yet without sin. He dealt with all the pressure that we deal with. He died on a cross. He went through physical suffering. And so he can go before God and say, God, I am you. But I'm also these people, and I can represent them perfectly, and I'm going to bring them back together and save. Isn't that so good? Fully God, fully man is so important. You see this in John 1. You see the scripture, and, and, it, talks, and it talks about in the beginning uh, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words... Don't let anybody tell you anything different. Jesus is God. Jesus is God, and he's our ambassador. You could also read Hebrews 1, very rich text. Colossians 1 is beautiful. It says, in him all things hold together. So by him and for him and through him, Jesus. It even talks about in Colossians 1 how Jesus was there at creation. Jesus is God. Philippians 2 might be the best one. How he, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he dwelt among the people. And he died, not just a normal death, but death of a crucifixion. I'm going to give you a little history lesson. I love history. And uh, every single session we're going to do, I'm going to sprinkle some historical church uh, facts. I had a professor tell me once, we have way too many Christians who are orphans because we don't know our church fathers. And it's so important for us in order to preserve the faith is to understand and remember the things that people fought for in the past. Did you know, it's kind of funny, I didn't even plan on saying this, but... Uh, do you know, we're Baptists, right? The very first movement was Anabaptist, I believe in the 1700s. Did you know Anabaptists literally died because they would not budge on the fact that baptism is of immer immersion? And we just uh, act like, oh yeah, sure, we'll do whatever you want. No, they believed in this so much that they were willing to die because they would not renounce that in the text, immersion is the, way, the mode of baptism. Isn't that crazy? And they would not baptize infants because they didn't believe it was in the text. How many of us have something in Scripture we'd be willing to die for? Okay? Church history helps remind us of that importance. Here's the first, here's the first guy I want to talk about. Athanasius. You should name your dog that. Like, isn't that legit? Or like your son's middle name, you know? Like, that is, that, that'd be William Athanasius. That's awesome. Okay, Athanasius. I love it. He, his nickname by his enemies was the Black Dwarf, okay? Dwarf. Did I say dwarf wrong? Okay. The Black Dwarf, all right? Uh, he lived in 296 to 373 A.D. Before I go any further, I'm taking these facts from this book right here. At the end of your booklet, I'm giving book recommendation, recommendations every week. We do not have this in the Welcome Center, but I strongly suggest you look it up. 131 Christians, everyone should know. 
I love it. It's a very small, it's like two to three pages each person. Look at me, I highlighted all of them. Just take my version, you'll get it quick. But some people are shorter than others. But here we actually have, in this book, it starts out with Athanasius. Athanasius is a very important person, especially when it comes to the fact, the doctrine of Jesus being fully God and him being fully man. To give a little uh, more background of him, he was a uh, arch, uh, he was a bishop of Alexandria. The way it happened back then, a bishop, he was essentially a pastor of pastors. So he'd walk around and make sure the pastors were properly shepherding their people, and he would help lead in doctrine. So he was actually a bishop for 45 years. 17 of those years, he was living in exile. He was exiled five times by four different Roman emperors because he would tick them off, because when the culture would start saying, wait a minute, Let's not believe that. He said, no, you're going to believe it. If not, then you're not the true church. And they just kept kicking him out. Uh, so he lived a lot of his life in exile. What he majorly fought for was the Trinity, specifically that Jesus is God. And he was willing to die for it. He believed strongly in the deity of Christ. Now, I want us to recognize this isn't s- splitting hairs. It's salvation or heresy. This is Jesus God. If there's someone in your life that says Jesus is not God, that is heresy, and that is not the true salvation, and you cannot get saved. That is why when Mormonism, they might have some issues when you talk about Jesus being God. He's a God. No, 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 no. He's the God. He is God. Super important distinction. A Jehovah's Witness really struggle with this as well, which, by the way, I, we're going we're to do another four-week course sometime talking about the four different major religions in our area and the, the differences that we have with them. I, I, I like that. Okay, so I'm doing good on time. Here's the guy. His, his name was Arius. Okay, Arius was the, what we now call him as the uh, heretic, which, by the way, that's a strong word. So don't, you don't just say, her, you know, heretic. Like, that's actually, like, it's a, a condemning word, especially in this time. This was, he coined this phrase, and it even says in this history book that kids were seen running around saying this phrase out loud. There was a time when the sun was not. That was the theology behind it. There was a time. I don't know how the song sounded cool but it, was, it wasn't in English, but there was a time when the sun was not. In other words, God was always, but there was a time when Jesus did not exist. Do you see how horrible the implications are if we don't truly believe that Jesus is God? Then he cannot die in our place because he doesn't fully represent him. So that's the problem. So Constantine, he wanted this resolve. Constantine, the emperor, you may know about him in history. He loved to have a lot of people, it depends on who you talk to, but a lot of people think historically, I think he just uh, saw the church as a great way of advancing his cause rather than actually loving Jesus. But then some people say otherwise. I don't know. I don't know which historian to rely on. But he put up together this council at Nicaea. You ever heard of that before? Put together this council, and it was to resolve this issue, and that's what, how they drew up the Nicene Creed. Have you ever heard of the Nicene Creed? If you go to Passion Creek, every single Sunday, our service starts out with the Nicene Creed, and, uh, and it was put together with 1,800 bishops, and they, did, and, and they wrote this Nicene Creed. I'm, uh, I'll read it at the end, because we're going to talk about the Trinity to close it out, but I just mentioned him, Athanasius, with this, the topic of being full to God, fully man. He was willing to be exiled and even die for his faith, because he knew it was so important to preserve the fact that Jesus is God. We have to know that. We cannot budge on that. Because beliefs dictate behavior, and even more than that, if Jesus isn't God, then his sacrifice wasn't enough. All right, here's the next slot. He's our perfect and sinless Savior. He is our perfect and sinless Savior. Hebrews 4.15 says this. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, this is the important part, yet without sin. So Jesus is God, and with that, because this is so crucial, he is perfect. But it's also so crucial that he was tempted like we were. Because he cannot stand in our place if he did not suffer like we've suffered, if he did not experience the thing we suffered, because then he wouldn't be the perfect ambassador. But what he did, Matthew 4, is also a very strong account. Uh, Luke chapter 4 is the same thing. Uh, you can look it up on our, on our website. I preached on that. That's a really cool passage. Satan tempted Jesus, but Jesus quoted Scripture and fought and won. 
And I love it because in Luke 4, it says Satan left until another opportune time. Just because Jesus won the battle once doesn't mean he came back again for another shot. And you really see that culminating in Luke chapter 19. Okay, but let me not preach Luke. I love that book. All right, Savior, 1 Timothy 1.15, of course. Perfect and sinless Savior. So 1 Timothy 1.15, it references how he is the Savior of the world. Okay, so he saved us. In other words, remember, man, we are fallen. We are without hope. We are dead spiritually. We can't do anything. So if you're dead spiritually and you're helpless, when you're helpless, what do you need? You need a Savior. So Jesus is a Savior. And by the way, he is the only Savior. What does John, anybody know John 14, 6? For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And guys, this is so hard because we have friends that say, no, I... Every religion goes to God. If we say yes to that, we're saying no to Jesus because we are saying, okay, Jesus, what you did, you didn't really have to do it because there's other ways to get there. That's the most, that is the worst thing to do to Jesus is to say there's another way to get there. Why would God send his only son to die on the cross and go through that, experience the wrath of God if there was another way? And so we have to, and I know it sounds like we're so kind by saying, yeah, every religion works, but that's actually the most unkind thing you could do to somebody because you may have patted them on the back as they go to hell. We have to stand firm in this doctrine. And it's the fact that he's perfect and sinless, and he's the Savior, and guess what? He is the only way. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Anybody know that? He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God beautiful picture of substitution. In other words, Jesus is perfect, we are not, and we switch places. He got treated from God as if he was the sinner so that we can be treated from God as if we were the son. Did you know God looks at you in Luke, at the end of Luke 4, uh, no, end of Luke 3, Jesus gets baptized, and what happens? The dove, you see the Holy Spirit, and what does God say? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. That same affection God had in that moment to Jesus, if you believe in Jesus Christ, his blood covers you, and he looks at you and says, this is my son, this is my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done in our place. That's powerful. He's our, he's our perfect savior. Here's the last one. He's our resurrected king. Do you realize how important it is to mention that part? Like, I've heard, I've heard so many gospel conversations, and it's Jesus died for you great, but he also rose again. That's how we have the power, because what? Gandhi died too, and Buddha, and all, everybody dies, but there's only one who rose again. And by him raising again, this is what he did. It wasn't just like, hey, told you. What he did is when he rose again, he conquered sin. Sin does, no longer has a hold on him. He conquered death. Not even death could hold him down. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 58, death, where is your sting? Right? To him be the glory forever and ever. And amen. Guys, this is so, I love that. I love the fact that he's resurrected, but not only that, he's our king. He is sitting on the throne today, ruling over his people. And he's a faithful, he's not just a king, but he's our priest who cares for us and loves us. And he's not just a king, he's not just a priest, but he's also our prophet who speaks truth to us. Munus triplex, prophet, priest, king. We might talk about that later. I wrote a senior paper on it. It's a real fun topic. By God being prophet, he confronts. I'm alliterating, Dad. By God being prophet, he confronts us. By God being priest, he comforts us. And by God being king, he commands us. I got an A. Okay. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I won $200, too. All right, so response. They put it in a, it was my last senior paper. I'm so pumped about that. All right. Response. This is all so beautiful. This theology is so great. But it means nothing if we don't act. It means absolutely nothing. So here's what's so important. I want to mention the Trinity here. I, sometimes I, I say God, man, Jesus, Holy Spirit, because I want to mention all the characters in the play here. But sometimes response is more helpful because it recognizes that they have something they're supposed to do. But we have to first understand it is the Spirit who draws us. Is the Holy Spirit. Read John 14 tonight. John, read John 14 through 16, and I dare you to not be blown away about, about what the Holy Spirit does in our life. You know what the Holy Spirit's job is? To make much of Jesus. And he reveals truth to us. 
He reveals, wicked, he, he reveals so many things. He sanctifies us. So we have the Holy Spirit. So in our response, we have to remember, if we get saved, it's not because of our brilliance. It's because God in his mercy, the Holy Spirit, revealed this truth to us. You see, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians where it talks about how there's a veil hidden over us. And so we cannot see the beauty and the image of God. But the Holy Spirit's job is to lift that veil for us to get a clear picture of who he is. And now it's up to us to respond to that truth. So here's the first thing we must do. We must respond in faith. Now, I love this concept. I, I, I love that people talk about faith in our culture, but man, they have the wrong definition. Because when, whenever you hear people talk about faith, people love. They're like, oh, I'm not religious, but I love talking about faith, right? I love talking about spiritual things. The problem, we live in a culture today where they think faith is more about how much you feel it rather than the object you're putting your faith into, right? So it doesn't matter how much faith I believe a three-legged chair would hold me. If there's not that fourth leg, then it's, I'm going to fall. It doesn't matter how convinced I was. But also, if I sit on a normal chair... It doesn't matter how doubtful I was. If I actually sit, then it's not going to fall. Do you guys see that? What's more important is the object we're putting our faith in, not how much faith we have. I have time. Yeah, I do. Y yeah, okay. I love this illustration. You guys remember the Passover? Anybody alive then? <laughs> the Passover, do you know why it's called Passover? Because the angel would pass over, right? But how, who, what did he look for in order to pass over? The blood on the doorpost. Check this out. There's this conversation. It's not in the Bible. It's somewhere else. But Johnny and Joe were talking, and, and they were both Jewish, and they heard this command. And Johnny's like, man, where is that lamb? Let's cut this sucker up. Let's put it on the door. I want to sleep well tonight, right? Like, I can't wait. Praise the Lord. I didn't like my Egyptian neighbor's son anyways, right? Like, he's just pumped about this whole situation. Now his son's going to start on the basketball team, right? So he puts the blood over the doorpost. And he, but then who, who, who did I say was confident, Johnny or Joe? I don't know. It doesn't matter. The other guy. He goes, I don't know, man. I'm a little nervous. Like, okay, I'm going to get this lamb. I'm going to get the blood. I'm going to put it on my doorpost. But, man, I'm going to keep waking up at night. I'm going to keep checking on my son. I'm going to keep making sure that he's okay. In fact, he's going to sleep in my bed tonight. All right? When they woke up that morning, whose son was killed? Neither. The point was they put the blood over the doorpost. Guys, it's not about how much faith you have. It's what you put your faith into. I believe in you, Jesus. And guess what? You can get saved today even though you have doubts. But if you know essentially, but God, I'm putting all my trust in you and you alone. I got questions, but I believe in that. And I'm doubtful, but I want to believe in that. What does the scripture say? I believe. Help me in my unbelief. So God calls us to faith. And don't put so much of the emphasis on how great you feel because our feelings sway back and forth. But put faith in you knowing this is where theology helps. Jesus is perfect. He died in my place. I'm believing that to be my Savior. We have to have that faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. By the way, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 talks about how it's not faith plus works. A lot of us say, okay, God, I trust you, but I'm also going to make sure I do a lot of good works just in case that falls through. That's not true faith at all. Right? That's like killing the lamb but not putting it on the doorpost, right? It's going halfway. No, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. The last thing, though, is repentance. For us to fully be restored, for us to respond to this gospel, we have to repent. And this is one of my favorite. You'll see it in this book by Greg Gilbert, I think, or I'm just, I came up with a quote, and I'm brilliant. I'm giving credit to somebody else. I think it was this book. But it says, repentance is not perfection. It's taking sides. A lot of us have this picture, repent, so be perfect. No, no, no. Here's what repentance is. Okay, let's say I sinned right here. I am a sinner, and I committed a sin against God. What we're called to do is repent. It Literally, the, the repent means to turn a 180. So if I'm sinning, I'm saying, okay, God, I repent. So this doesn't just mean on the first day when you believe in him for the first time, but it means every day you talk to your wife, you have to turn, turn around and repent and say, okay, God, I'm taking your side. What I did was wrong. I Get that away from me. God, forgive me. I am on your side. What I did was sinful, and I do not want to do that. You guys see that? That's a picture of repentance. You're turning away from that lifestyle. Now, are you to creep back? Yeah, until you die, right? But the job every day is to say, oh, God, I'm sorry. 
Oh, God. And guess what, what's so cool? When you do this, it's called sanctification. We'll look at it next week. There's going to be sins that you no longer are drawn to. You're going to have other battles to fight, but some of that small stuff, you, you, you can conquer it. There's just new stuff that comes every day. It's not perfection. It's taking sides. Another way to put it is repentance is loving the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates. That's repentance. Got it? So that's restoration, too. So what we're called to do, we want to bring this community, restore it to its full uh, capacity, and that being we live in harmony with one another by trusting God and turning away from evil acts and always seeking to do better for everyone else. Got it? All right. Any questions on that? I didn't think so. All right. Because we only got 30, we got 27 minutes. We're leaving, by the way, sorry, we're going to be rude tonight. We're leaving like right at 8 tonight because we uh, pray for our students. They're at youth camp in Flagstaff, and I get to, this is the biggest crowd I've ever spoken to, not here, but uh, at Zona. It's going to be 1,500 students, so I'm preaching there at 8, 8.30 a.m. tomorrow, so we are taking off tonight so that I don't have to take off like 4 a.m. tomorrow morning. So that's why we're going to leave soon. So, all right, what is the Trinity? I'm glad you asked, all right? Did I? I've been good on this, right? Okay, the Trinity. Do, do you remember me mentioning the Nicene Creed? Who helped write it? Athanasius, 1,800 bishops, but Athanasius was the chief among them. Here's the, here's the Nicene Creed. I'm so embarrassed. I don't have it fully memorized, even though we play it every week at our church. But I'm always welcoming people. That's my excuse. All right. Nicene Creed says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. We see that language in Colossians 1. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, this being Jesus. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again. According to the scriptures, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. That's the second coming. Now, this is what most Baptists ignore, but Pentecostals are all up in this business. We believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Time out. Catholic means universal, not the Catholic faith. All right. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Okay? This is what we have here. There's five statements concerning the Trinity that will help you. Now, before I do that, can you please, I've done this in the past, but I've learned this is heresy. Do not use modalism as a way to explain the Trinity. In other words, it is wrong of you. People were willing to, people were put to death by using this. Do not say, well, the Trinity is like water, ice, and steam. Don't do that. If you've done it to your ch child, repent, okay? So, or like the three-leaf clover, or what's some other fun ones? You know, like, oh, I'm a father and a husband and a son. Yeah, sometimes. Okay, so, you know, all of those are wrong because we cannot, be, it's modalism, it, it's incorrect, it, because those theories break down. That means, okay, that means it could only be one thing at one time, and so you have this heresy modalist, which I've actually had to deal with already in my ministry, of uh, people saying, okay, the Old Testament, he was God, the Father, now he morphed into, no longer God the Father up there, now we have him as Jesus on earth, and now he's been morphed into Holy Spirit. That's why some churches like uh, the Pentecostal movement, like a lot of the churches there, uh, a lot of them are modalist, um, and, and that's why they make a big deal about the Spirit, because they think that's the only one that's there right now. You see that? that, that what? You want to mention names of the, heresy, of the heretics? I don't know any of them. Do I? Oh, T.D.? Yeah, T.D. Jakes. Okay, so moving on. Uh, he's known for that, although... I will say, I looked up this article, he's like backing off on it a little bit more, but he's not fully repented of it, so give him a, uh, yeah, so don't give him a break, but that is one person. I don't, I always feel uncomfortable calling people out because they'll call me out. All right, so here's the first one. Here's five statements concerning the Trinity that will help you understand. 
So, when someone asks you, what's the Trinity? I'm glad you asked. I have a really cool uh, Theology of the Gospel booklet, and I'm going to pop it out right now, okay? Here's the five statements. I'm not going to use the three-leaf clover. I'm not going to talk about fire, ice, steam, whatever. I'm going to talk about this. There is one God. Deuteronomy 6, right? Deuteronomy 6.4, does anybody know that one? Yeah, the Shema, the Lord our God is one, okay? Exodus 20, verse 3 which is in the Ten Commandments, and then also 1 Timothy 2.5. We have the scriptures, and it's, a, uh, it's actually a very radical view in much of the biblical times, because did you know uh, when Jesus left the scene, or when he ascended into heaven, Christians were called atheists because they couldn't believe that they only believed in one God. Wow. Because back then, there was a God, yeah, I'll say it again, in that culture, Rome, think about Greek mythology and all this. There were multiple gods, right? Polygamy, right? No, not polygamy. That's multiple women. <laughs> all right, uh, it's a uh, polytheism. There's poly in there, which, by the way, I'm going to redeem myself. Poly is the Greek word for many, okay? So there you go, many. Many women, all right. Okay, Woo! I almost dug a hole. Okay, so there is one God. This was a radical belief that there was only one God. And so that's why when the Christians, when they're first called Christians in the early church in Acts, it says historical evidence that people called them atheists because they're like, how could you only believe in one God? Makes no sense. So this has always been radical. Did you know today people believe in many gods? They just don't use that verbiage. They believe in the God of sex, and then they also worship the God of wealth. They worship the God of family. They worship the God of this, that, and the other. They don't say it out loud, but they worship and serve those things because they expect to do what only God can do, and that's worshiping God, right? They worship money to give them the satisfaction that only God can give. All right, so there's only one God. Now, in the scriptures, the Bible depicts God, uh, the, the Bible depicts the Father as God. The Bible depicts Father as God. So you see it all throughout. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is the one that really emphasizes this. Whenever he's talking about God, whenever he's praying to God, he says, God our Father, who art in heaven, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's actually, in the book of John alone, it's mentioned 122 times as the Father being God. Okay? So that's helpful to know. Now, not only that, but the Bible depicts Jesus as God. This is the controversial one. The scripture is very clear. There is nothing in scripture that says, oh, maybe you can. No. Uh, If you know Greek, you know it's very, very clear. Jesus is the object of the people's worship of Revelation 5.8. He is the object of faith in Romans 8.9. Jesus is the forgiver of all sins in Mark 2.5. That is something only held for God because, look, you cannot forgive a sin unless you are the one that was being sinned against. Because Jesus is God, all of our sins have been against him because we've gone away from the image of God. So for Jesus to say, I forgive you, means that he is taking the title of God. Woo! Okay. Uh, Jesus is creator. You see that in Romans one, uh, Colossians 1. Excuse me. Also, we just read it in the beginning, Romans 11, 33-36. We also see this one scary. Jesus is the judge. Matthew 7, 21-23 talks of that. Jesus claims in Mark 2 that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Only God can be Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus takes that title because he himself is God. And in John 5, Jesus says that I am life. Only in God can you have life. I think in John 8 too, this isn't in my notes, but he says I am the light of the world. Only God can take that title. And Jesus is God, so he rightly can do so. And we've already talked about why it's so important that he's God. Okay. Right, okay. Yeah, so it, like in Genesis and 1, uh, let, us, let us make man in our image, we have Elohim. And Elohim means plural. So us, plural, so God, he's already from the very beginning claimed that he is multiple, right? Is that good enough definition? I'm not a Hebrew guy, I'm a Greek guy, so I'll talk about the Greek words. You talk about the Hebrew words. All right, that's for next. You do that next week. All right. Now, we also, I covered that. Now, the Bible depicts the Spirit as God. This is so interesting. Can I tell you that the Spirit is a person? So, in other words, when you say, God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come. I pray that it would move. You did it wrong. Not it would move, that he would move. 
I pray that the Spirit, I pray that it would come down. No, no, no. The Spirit's not it. It's a, it's a he. Read John 14 through 16. Jesus never calls the Holy Spirit an it. Jesus always calls the Holy Spirit he. It's fascinating how often we get it wrong. Acts 5, 1 through 4, you see the Spirit operating as God. You see it in Hebrews 9. You see it in 1 Corinthians 2. I love that passage. Also 2 Corinthians 3. I think I put that in some of your notes. Uh, just some of them. Okay, Hebrews 9. Yeah, so here's what the Spirit does. The Spirit performs things that only God could do, and that's He reveals Scripture. He fills. So the Holy Spirit is within us, right? He anoints us, and I love it. We're talking about 2 Timothy at, at Passion Creek. He seals us. He, he, he uh, yeah, where you're sealed in Him. There, there, we, we cannot be separated from the love of God. And the last point for tonight is the Father, Son, and the Spirit are distinguished persons, yet one. Distinguished, yet one. This can be very uh, intimidating to talk about, but um, Augustine of, of, of Hippo, uh, we might talk about it. I love, talking, I love calling him Augustine. But he, li- he lived in the late 300s, and he says this quote. He says, You stir man to take pleasure in praising you, that being God, because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And he goes on and he says, look, the way he describes the distinguished persons is you have the father as the initiator. means he's the one who's initiated this relationship. The son as the mediator, the ambassador, the one who died for us. And I love the spirit. He's the unifier. The Holy Spirit's job is for us to be in one accord and to worship Jesus, because his job is to make much of Jesus, which is in reality making much of himself, because he's also God, right? It's just like, what? Right? Three in one. So if you have any more questions about the Trinity, I suggest a good resource would be the Athanasius Creed. So I mentioned how he helped with the Nicene Creed, but read the Athanasius Creed. It is fascinating. Literally, Athanasius thought through every opposition you can have towards the Trinity, and he nails it. It's really, it's kind of long. It's fantastic. Okay, so now the, the, the last thing I have for you is I want you to think through some action steps. What did you learn in this session that you did not previously know about God? And how can you apply that in your life this week? Well, hey, I'm going to pray. Thank you. Next week is awesome, too. Glorification, sanctification, justification, all the good stuff. And I uh, hope you'll come back. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank, we thank you for your word because it's truth. Amen. And Father, we thank you for putting this together into Trey's mind and heart, giving it to us so that we can be refreshed, refueled, refocused again of where we need to be. Father, I thank you, and I pray that this church will change the community and change the world, because once we get the gospel in us, the good news, and we start smiling and sharing that with everybody we know, it changes, folks. Father, I pray for all of us tomorrow to have an opportunity to share the gospel, the good news to somebody in our realm Father, I pray that we'll invest in somebody with the gospel and then inspire them and influence them and invite them to Christ and impact their life. Father, again, we thank you for this place that we can teach this. And now, Father, I pray blessings upon those who are here, that they'll retain what they needed to retain and that they'll study even more to share the gospel to the world that's dying that needs it so bad. Father, we love you and we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.